Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, the title of my message for this Lord's Day is Promised Seed. Promised Seed, with the subtitle, The Story of Redemption. We will be studying the biblical topic of promised seed, which we encounter in the book of Genesis. From the very beginning of the Bible, you start reading about this seed, and we're given a promise about this seed. And as you move through the Bible from the book of Genesis all the way up to Christmas, to the birth of Jesus and beyond, you, you see this talk of a promised seed. That said, please open your Bibles and find your way to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and find your way into the opening chapter. Just have chapter 1 in front of you, if you would, please. And we're going to get into chapter 2, chapter 1, chapter 3. We're going to look at other chapters. Today, I'm, I'm beginning our 2022 Christmas sermon series. This is the second Sunday of, of Advent, so ideally it would have, have begun last week, but as some of you may know, uh, I've been sick for quite a while, so, and Pastor Tony's been filling in. Shout out to Pastor Tony, would you give it up for him? And, um, yeah, it's November, November was a wild ride of colds and flus and infections and all sorts of things, so thank you to all of you. Uh, who, who've been praying for our family. We're not quite out of the woods yet. Um, still not, not feeling full. But uh, anyway, I'm very excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning to minister God's Word and to, to kick off our Christmas sermon series. Every year we have an Advent sermon series that focuses us on something Christological, something that will help us to think about Christ as we celebrate Christmas. And this sermon series, as you can see in front of you, I have titled this sermon series, The Conceiving of Christmas. Uh, it, it is a play on the, the, what we call the Virgin Conception, the coming of the Christ child in the Virgin Mary. So we're going to be looking at what, what, what's the significance of this doctrine of Virgin Conception? Why is this important for us to understand? And, and what sorts of things does the Virgin Conception give to us that we need to know as a part of our celebration of Christmas and our worship of Christ now, Christmas or Advent is the celebration of the historical reality of this doctrine, the Virgin Conception. That said, this doctrine is more than a mere abstract creed found in an ancient book. It is also part of a story that was written by God before the foundations of the world, which is coming to life in human history before the eyes of the ancients and on today before our eyes. You see, the coming of the Christ child is both doctrine and story. Which brings me to the first point on your outline about the power of stories. Number one, storytelling and the power of stories. With Genesis in front of us, it's worth noting that the Bible begins with a story. In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now this is a story that is historical. It's, 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 not, it's not myth. It's not fantasy. It's, it's, it doesn't begin with, you know, many moons ago. It's not Star Wars. This, this is history, but it is history being told in the genre of story. The book of Genesis opens, and it takes us into an incredible story about the creation of the world. Look at, look at, look at the text here of God speaking, let there be light, and there's light, verse 3. Of, of, of God saying, verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and separating the waters. And verse 8, God calling the expanse, what? Heaven. You have the heavens, you have the earth, you have, you have the cosmos. You, ha you have a story of God creating the world. You have a story wherein we encounter God and His love and His power. 
The story begins here in Genesis 1, and it continues and weaves through this story. It weaves through all, all 66 of the books of the Bible. And it starts here in Genesis. And the, the one story that's being told throughout this, this book, in the 66 books that make up this one book, the story that is being told is a story of redemption. And hence my, my subtitle here this morning, The Story of Redemption. I want to make sure that we understand this story of redemption because it's critical for our celebration of Christmas and our worship of Christ. Thinking about the power of, of story and with Christmas upon us, it is worth noting that Christ used storytelling in His ministry in powerful ways. Historically speaking, Jesus was popularly known for His skillful and insightful use of stories, especially His parables. In fact, one of his students, Matayahu, Matthias, whom I'm named after, in English we just say Matthew, Matthew wrote this of Jesus in Matthew 13, 3. He, Jesus, spoke many things to them in parables. He was a storyteller, a master teacher, not to mention a master of living well, heck, perfectly. Jesus used stories to teach people in real life about real life and about real faith. They, stories, are very effective in communicating, educating, and training others. Hence, it is no wonder that Jesus used them. As well as training and educating and communicating, stories have, have, have entertainment value to them. We, we all like a good story. Everyone loves a, a good story. It's Christmas time, and this is where the debates begin, in fact, in our culture. What's the greatest you know, Christmas movie? And is Die Hard a Christmas movie? You know, inquiring minds want to know. And, and so, you know, yes it is, a eh, to the men, right? And you see, you know, you, you see people talking of stories and families getting together and, and we're going to watch Elf for like the 1,000th time and we're going to watch, you know, Christmas Story and, you know, we like stories. Now, why are stories so powerful? Because they're just a basic part of our humanity. I was recently reading an article at the Institute for Research and Innovation in Social Sciences by Michelle Drum, who wrote on the power of story, and I'll show you a quote from it. She writes, ever since human beings sat around the fire in caves, they have told stories to help them grapple with life and the struggle to survive. Stories give us a deeper insight into lived experience, past, present, and imagined futures. It could be argued that the art of telling and listening to Stories is at the heart of what it means to be human. How human beings articulate their experience of the world and make sense of it. Uh, it's, it's basic to our humanity, as I said. Humans are, are storytellers and we're shaped by stories. Anthropologists, social scientists, historians, psychologists, and scientists, they all affirm this fact. Speaking of scientists, I was recently reading an article at NPR that was entitled, How Stories Con Connect and persuade us. The subtitle of the article was this, listen, unleashing the power, the, the brain power of narrative. Now this article goes on to discuss how scientists have been using functional MRI scans to document how the brain lights up when someone is listening to a story. Regions of the brain that are associated with emotion and movement and language and processing information, they, they light up, they light up in other neural circuits when listening to story. Now, no doubt, as, as believers, we believe that humans are more than matter. We are not our brains. We are souls that have minds. And when those minds are, are working, things, uh, things can be detected in the brain. Now, beyond brain activity, stories mold us as humans and impact the way that we see the world and we live life. 
This is true not only at the individual level, but it is also true at, social, at a broader social level and cultural realm. You see, stories shape the way that, that cultures are formed and societies uh, exist. Now, of course, this can be good for the good or for the bad. It really depends on the stories that we tell ourselves. We think of various national stories that we have or various national characters that can shape the culture of North America. And, and you can see how that could be good, certain stories of, of, of working hard and, and being a good citizen or whatever and, and taking responsibility. Those can uh, reinforce and stabilize a culture. Uh, stories at the national level can also work for the bad. The nation that tells itself that, that it is the best and the bordering nation next to them is evil. Stories of propaganda, those propaganda stories, or stories of ethnocentrism and nationalism, that, that, that those stories, as, as a culture and a nation tells those stories to itself, it can, it can brew and lead to conflict and even war. This raises an important and intuitive point about stories. In addition to being powerful, uh, they, they, can have, uh, they can be true and they can also be false. False storytelling can be a very dangerous activity. As, as you might have thought in the aforementioned example of a bordering nation believing propaganda stories about this other nation that then leads it to conflict, uh, you, there you can see like how stories could literally lead to bloodshed. This is, this is true not just at the national level, but it's true also at a relational level. We can believe false stories about others. And we can even tell them to ourselves false stories, and they can ruin friendships and, and families through our broken and, and, and busted versions of what we think is going on with a particular person. What's true at the relational or national or interpersonal level of storytellings and, and, and their power and, and to affect negative things, that's also true at the individual level. At the individual level, think about the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Consider the person uh, who tells him or herself a negative story. You tell yourself negative stories, and, and you tell yourself a negative story about a certain goal, and you, you tell yourself, I'm not smart enough, I'm not privileged enough, I'm not whatever enough, and you tell yourself that story, and you can see how that's going to impact your ability to see a given goal completed. Negative and false stories that we tell ourselves have a way of looping in our minds, wreckfully ruminating and ruining our happiness, effectiveness, and health in life. With this in mind, let's move to the next point on our outline concerning the importance of truth in our storytelling. So we've talked about the power of story, and now let's talk about the importance of truth in our stories. We all know that stories can be true, and we all know that they can be false. And false stories can be bad, but false stories can also be good. Uh, by bad, we think about the, the stories that I was just kind of giving examples of that could lead nations to conflict or ruin relationships or stop an individual from completing something. We think about the bad effect that can come through false storytelling. Uh, but we also have false stories that, that can be good. We think of those fictional stories that we all love like Star Wars or, or Lord of the Rings or whatever, and you have characters and creatures and plot lines, and they're not real, but they're entertaining and educational. Concerning the educational, we think of historical fiction. Uh, that, that's false. You have characters that don't exist and sort of made-up conversations and what have you, but nevertheless, historical fiction can be very beneficial. It can teach people uh, things about history. Now, as well, it can teach people things about ethics and morals and even faith. Uh, 
Regarding faith and fiction, we think of creative Christian story writers and movie makers who, who make up stories to teach truth and to challenge others towards good living, and more importantly, to faith in our good Lord. Uh, in recent years, there's been uh, you know, the Chosen series that has come out, and it's filled with a lot of fictional stuff, but, but, but people are being drawn into it to have conversations about, about faith, about Christ. Now, all of that said, we've got Genesis in front of us. We've got our Bibles in front of us. And the Bible is telling us a story that is true. And the power of this story as we tell the story to ourselves and in our relationships and to our nation has the power to transform the, the, the world. It's a powerful story that needs to be understood and needs to be told. Okay, so, so with that in front of us and thinking about the power of it, it is important that we emphasize the truth of this account. Genesis, as, as you've seen, as I've already stated, it's, it's not myth, it's not fiction, it's not fantasy. It wasn't, it wasn't written out of sordid purposes. On the contrary, it's a pure record of history that gives us the story of humanity and revelation of God. It tells us where we came from and who created us and what He made us for. Would you turn from chapter 1 to chapter 2? In chapter 1, we get a broad-eye view of the creation story. And then in chapter 2, the author zooms in. Draw your eyes at, at verse 4 specifically. He zooms in to the earth. Chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. Now no shrub of the field was in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth, and the water of the ground, and the surface of the ground, and then the Lord God, verse 7, formed man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So, so this is a, a, a zooming in. Zooming in on the creation account, emphasizing anthropology and, and the earth. And, and in this account, the author is giving us the story of creation. He's giving us a historical story of creation. Now, of course, critics of the Bible like to attack this story, don't they? They find ancient creation accounts that predate the Bible, and they take those ancient predating accounts and they cherry-pick them to find similarities in them to accuse Genesis of plagiarism. In the ancient world, we have, we have handfuls of these creation accounts. Uh, many of them are, 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 you know, uh, will we'll talk about there being this chaos and, and sort of a God appears and starts taking the chaos and, and giving it order. There's also earth diver accounts and emergent stories and world parent narratives and divine twin tales and a bunch of regional creation accounts from Africa to Mesoamerica, the Americas, Asia, Europe, Middle East, Pacific Islands, you have all these ancient stories of humans trying to make sense out of the creation, and you can geek out on those, and skeptics of the Bible are going to try and take those and say, oh, the Bible was just copying them, but nothing could be further from the truth. When you take the time and you look at them, for example, one that gets noted a lot that comes from ancient Babylon and Assyria is an account known as Enuma Elish. In the Enuma Elish creation story, it's actually a few hundred years before Genesis, you, you have little similarities. Oh, they have water in their creation account. They have air and land, and so Genesis must be copying. And, and then you read it for yourself, and you go, this is absolutely ridiculous. They are, they are not the same. 
Uh, one of these is not like the other one. In Genesis, there's one God. In Enuma Elish, there are many. In fact, in Enuma Elish, the gods have sex with each other. They make God babies, and their babies war and kill each other, and the gods collectively are immoral. This is Mr. Rogers versus Jerry Springer. These are totally different accounts. Now, on this note of pagan myths and true biblical story, it is worth pausing to share a brief sidebar here as we're reflecting on stories, the Christmas story, and beginning the Christmas story with creation. A little sidebar here about the great intellectual Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis. He's popularly known for his storytelling, popularly known for the Chronicles of Narnia, for example. Well, before these stories, uh, um, he was a student of stories, and hence he became a great storyteller. He was a student, in fact, of ancient texts. And, and, and as a young boy and as a young man, he was a critic of Christianity. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in the Bible. He didn't believe in Christ. And he saw, in the ancient creation accounts, uh, he, he saw, as the skeptic saw, he goes, well, maybe these are just all copying each other. As well, in, in the account in the Bible of Jesus, he saw, well, there's other pagan myths of, like, God's being born and God's dying and resurrecting. Maybe this is just all copied. It's just all plagiarism. As one Lewis scholar notes, in his biography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis wrote that one factor that contributed to his atheism was the similarity between Christianity and pagan mythology. In his secondary education, it was assumed that pagan myths were false and Christianity true, and so he wondered on what basis Christianity could be exempt from the same critical judgment that was passed on myths. Now, Lewis, long story short, began studying it for himself. And he begins studying not just the accounts of Scripture, but also what, what myth is in various cultures of the world. He then comes into contact with the great scholar J.R. Tolkien, who was at Oxford at the time. And, and J.R. Tolkien, too, was a master storyteller. We get the Lord of the Rings from him. And he helped Lewis see that pagan myths were actually powerful stories because pagan myths have fragments of truth in them. Pagan myths actually tap into the power of story, uh, Tolkien showed Lewis. They borrow from God's general revelation and creation about things like good and evil, life and death. You see, the similarities are not evidence of plagiarism. No, they're attributable to the power of story in addressing the plight of humanity, which all the pagan stories were trying to make sense of, albeit without revelation from God. Using his literary scholarship, Lewis then began to see how God used, in his common graces, shadows of fallen humanity to reveal pieces of, of light in storytelling of cultures, which ultimately culminate in the greatest story that we have inside of the Bible. And Lewis, on bended knee, turned to Christ in repentance and faith and became a very powerful apologist for the faith. You see, story is powerful. But the question remains for the student of story, is the story before us true or not? And key in this question is from whence does it come? In the case of Genesis, we have strong evidence that this is not a mere story of a man. This comes from God. This is not mere man telling stories to make sense of things. This is God disclosing himself to us in the form of story. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, you see, it's God speaking. And what does God say in verse 18 about humanity? It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Move forward for sake of time here to verse 21. God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. He slept. He took from his side, closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord fashioned 
the woman that he had taken from the man and, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to a wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife, we read, were both naked and not ashamed. The story begins with purity. They're, they're naked and not ashamed. They're, they're pure. They're pure. The story begins with purity, and the story begins with power. A powerful God is creating, and what He is creating is pure. They're naked and not ashamed. They have a purpose. In addition to power and purity, there's purpose. They were made to be together. They were made to love one another. They were, they were made to begin families, and families who begin families and, and fill the earth. In the beginning chapters, they were told by God to have dominion over the earth, to exercise His authority in the earth, so there's, there's order and there's purpose and there's dignity. They're made in the very image of God. They're made in the very image of God. Now, all, all of that said, let me say again what I said moments ago. With Genesis in front of us, it is important to note that this story of creation is not fictional or fantasy. On the contrary, it is a pure record of history that gives us a story of humanity and revelation from God. The book doesn't contain lies. It's been analyzed for thousands of years, and you, you can't, you, they, they won't stand up to scrutiny. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, we get insight into why that is the case, that the account doesn't have lies, further that the Bible itself doesn't have lies, more than telling truth, it actually is truth. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, He prays to the Father and He says, Sanctify them, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. You see, the Bible doesn't just contain truth. It is truth. This verse gives us an important reality that, that the Word is true. And secondly, it gives us a, another important reality that this, this Word, this true Word, has sanctifying power for life and witness for those who come to it. This is why this book is so important for us as, as, as believers to be devouring and obeying, enjoying and sharing it. That said, as we share, we will inevitably meet people who think that this book is not true. They will accuse it of falsities and contradictions. They'll, they'll, they'll find things to pick at and go, what about this and what about this? And in response, we have answers for every what about this that we can intellectually show will not stand up to scrutiny. The Bible stands true. But further, not just intellectually engaging, but lovingly providing answers to those who are in the pursuit of truth. For those who want to know, is there a God? And who that God is? And where we came from? Further, to know what is wrong with us. It doesn't take a degree in psychology or sociology to know that there is something wrong with us. I read that verse there about being naked and not ashamed. And I go, man, what does that feel like? What does that feel like to be naked and not ashamed? We are, we are clothed and shameful. We are clothed and guilty. We are filled with shame. And those who are not we call them sociopaths because they're disconnected from that reality. Just look at the news. Think about 2022. The rise of terrorism in Afghanistan. Russia invading Ukraine. 
I was looking at the latest stats on it. There's estimates of uh, 8,300 to 3,300 killed. There's threats looming of nuclear war. In July, the, the former prime minister of Japan, uh, Shinzo Abe, was assassinated. In Sudan, political tensions amid regional drought and conflict. Uh, people in need, there's 14.3 million people in the Sudan who are, who are, who are, who are, who are like, they got nothing. There's three million in Sudan who are displaced. In Syria, the Syrians are enduring the worst economic crisis since the, their war that began like 10 years ago with record levels of food insecurity and rapid inflation. At the same time, water shortages in North Syria are creating drought-like conditions for millions and jeopardizing already compromised health and water systems. There's an enduring risk of a major military offensive targeting outside of government control. There's 6.8 million displaced in Syria. We could be here all day, Myanmar, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, Nigeria, Yemen, Ethiopia. According to the latest global estimates, just thinking about the world and thinking about how dysfunctional and shameful we are, the latest global estimates of modern slavery that come from Walk Free, the International Labor Organization, and the International Organization for Migration, we currently have 49.6 million people in modern slavery today. Forced labor, forced marriages, the, the unmentionable sorts of things that are happening to children in slavery. We may be tempted to think, well, that's like, you know, that's like those, you know, developing nations, uh, right? That's those other places in the world. Well, in fact, the estimated number of people living in modern slavery in the United States right now is 400, it's over 400,000. You say, no, no, that, that, that can't be. I haven't seen slaves in America. Well, you just don't know where to look. In your child's school, working on a roof in the neighborhood, in your favorite restaurant in the back, in your grandmother's nursing home, or among the supply chain of the beautiful outfit that you just bought at the mall. Slavery exists all over America. Yeah, it hides from plain sight, to be sure. We have slavery here, in the land of the free. We have corruption here. We have violence here. 2022, remember in May, that 18-year-old kid who shot and killed his grandmother and then drove down to the elementary school and murdered 19 students, two teachers, and wounded 17 others? The same month, we had that white supremacist guy who shot and killed 10 black people in a supermarket and wounded several others. The problem's not out there in Sudan and Ethiopia and, you know, the, all those, uh, Russia. The problem is here. It's here in America. It's not just here in America, it's in here, in everyone in this room. It's in here. We're clothed and shameful. But in Genesis, we read of something different. They were naked and unashamed. Something happened in between Genesis 2 and 2022. Yeah, Genesis 3 and beyond. Turn in your Bibles from Genesis 2 to Genesis chapter 3. Here we read about the story of the fall that explains how we went from uh, naked and, and unashamed to clothed and shameful. Now, as we turn from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, it's worth noting elsewhere in the Scripture gives us kind of a back, a back story, a backstory of things going on. You know how when you're telling stories, sometimes a later episode will fill in some gaps we read in the book of Isaiah, let me put this in front of you, in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 18, we read a, a, a little gap here 
that tells us about who we meet here in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent, chapter 3, verse 1, was crafty. Who is this conniving creature? In Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, the storytellers of the Bible fill in a little gap here. They describe, you'll notice if you study these texts, they describe the kings of Babylon and Tyre. As you pay attention to the text, they also get into the spiritual power that was behind those despotic kings, namely the serpent, Satan. In these accounts, we read of the motive of Satan's rebellion against God. It is worth noting that Jesus, the eternal Son of God in the flesh, who we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus said very publicly in Luke 10, verse 18, let me put this in front of you, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You say, how did the historical Jesus see that? Because the historical Jesus is God the Son in the flesh. We worship a God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. In Christmas, we celebrate that the Father sent the Son to become a man. But he's, at, he's the God of Genesis. He's the God who's speaking and creating. He's here in the garden. He's here seeing the whole thing. That's the, the, the wild and amazing thing that that baby in the manger who we celebrate at Christmas is God of eternity in the flesh, specifically God the Son. I was there. I saw it happen. Up here I have a, a, cross, a cross reference for you to see in the book of Job, Job 38 verses 4 through 7, which tells us that angels were created before the earth was created. And all of this to say the serpent, Satan, who we meet here in Genesis 3, whom Revelation 20 verse 2 identifies as, as Satan, the serpent is Satan. In Genesis 3 we get the historical story of what happened. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast that the Lord had made and said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? And the serpent goes on to twist God's words. He's a storyteller too. And he starts to twist the true story. And this leads, this leads as I shared in the introduction about the negative effects of false narratives and what they can do, this leads to humanity joining with fallen angelic realms to join in a cosmic rebellion against God. And then we read in verse 7 that the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. Yeah, you see the shame there. You see the hiding there. Verse, verse 8, see more. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Again, the false stories, I shared how they can shatter relationships and individuals and even beyond. Here you see that happening. The loving God whom they were made to image and be in relationship with and know His love, now they're running and hiding from Him. And oh, the foolishness of it. You can't, you can't hide from an omnipresent being. He's everywhere. But, you know, I mean, it's not fun to play Marco Polo with Yahweh. You know, he's, he's just, you know, guess which hand. He sees everything. What do you think you're doing? But that's what, that's what sin does, doesn't it? it? It leads us into this kind of delusion where we, we think we can get away, we think we can cover, and we find ourselves in a constant pattern of, of covering and covering and covering. And the shame just keeps building and building and building and the guilt building and building and building. And so in the story here, though, we, we see God come to them in their dysfunction and He gives them what they do not deserve. He gives them grace. 
He is the author of life, the giver of life. We read Genesis 2 where he creates man and we read how he creates woman. He's the giver of life, intrinsic life, who gives life. He told them that rebellion against him would mean the taking back of life. He says, you, you eat from that tree, you will surely die, but in grace, death doesn't come to them in the moment. Rather, in grace, he, he, he stalls, he stalls. And so now death enters the creation, disease enters the creation, dysfunction enters the creation, and it enters in a slow process. And that, that's his grace. He could have taken life back from them, but, but, but he doesn't. And so graciously, they, they go on to live long lives, albeit not without pain, and not, not in nakedness and joy and, and freedom, but, but, but with hiding and covering and guilt and frustration and further exile. Look at verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent them out of the garden to cultivate the ground which he had taken. He drove the man out. And at the east of the garden he stationed cherubim, these are holy angels with flaming swords, which turn in every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. They are now exiled from his presence. Sin has shattered their relationship with their Creator, their relationship with the creation, and their relationship with one another. And that explains the evening news and explains the crazy stuff inside of our hearts. By listening to the serpent, humanity enslaved itself to sin. Further, it, it, this explains for our, our, ourselves not just all the dysfunction that we see and that we feel within ourselves. It also explains for us or, or rather envisions for us the liberation that we need. When you're in chains, you, you need liberation. And thankfully, in this story of Genesis, we see that God is not only a creator, He is an abolitionist. What is the subtitle of today's message? Promise Seed. Story of Redemption. The story of the Bible is a story of redemption. To redeem something in the biblical world meant to take it out of slavery. When you bought a slave off the market and you emancipated them, that's redemption. That's what we call paying a ransom. This is why the Bible speaks of, of Jesus in these terms. And before the coming of Jesus, this story is preparing you for His arrival by telling you of your need for redemption. Look at the text, verse 14. This is important. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. Uh, God uses zoological metaphors uh, you know, to, to describe the conditions of the kingdom of darkness and its head, the serpent. I will put, verse 15, enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your seed, serpent, and her seed, and he, that is her seed, is going to bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. There's a struggle now between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. So the story of the Bible then steps into struggle between good and evil, light and darkness, and, and what glues that together is the story of redemption as the conflict rages. If you are reading the Bible and you have the bigger story in mind, you will readily know what or rather who is being spoken about here when it says, He, He will bruise your head. You recognize, if you know the biblical story, that this is, in fact, the first mention of Christmas, specifically the coming of the Christ through the birth of a woman. 
This brings us to point three on our outline, retelling. We've talked about storytelling and truth-telling, and we're looking at the, the Bible, and, and we're wrapping ourselves around the story that it's telling, a story that moves from creation to Christmas and ultimately beyond. In the story of creation, we have the beginnings of the story of Christmas. We have, we have an explanation to the sin and dysfunction that we see in the creation. We're, we're told what we were made for. We're told what happened. And we're also promised that a day is going to come when things will be redeemed. In the story of creation, we have the beginnings of the story of Christmas, and that is worth rehearsing every Advent season, indeed every Lord's Day, indeed every day. This is a story that we need to be retelling ourselves. We need to, be renew, re, we, we need to have this in our minds, retelling this, ruminating on this. Uh, the point here of retelling, specifically, we need to retell two things. The reality of sin, which we've discussed, and the promise of a seed who will come. Write these down on your outline with the references. I'll explain them as I, as I go, but I want you to have those in your notes. So this is the first mention or allusion of Christmas, specifically this part about a figure who will be born of a woman who will overthrow the serpent and clean up the mess that he and our parents made. All of this is embedded in verse 15, which incidentally is referred to in, in our tradition and in a scholarship, it's referred to as the Proto-Evangelion. Let me put that in front of you, the proto-euangelion. Uh, the word proto, it literally means first, and euangelion is a, a word that means good news, or we'll say gospel, which also means good news. The proto-euangelion, in Latin it is proto-evangelium, and through the Latin you get the u to the v, and then that gets into our word the uh, evangel, or, or we use the word evangelical, those are gospel people, you see. Now, this is where our word gospel comes from. And when we talk about the gospel, we talk about good news, because that's literally what euangelion means. We talk about good news. We also talk about bad news. Uh, good news isn't good if you don't have the context of bad. If you went to the doctor and he said, I have good news for you. You're like, what? Uh, your cancer is gone. You go, I didn't know I had cancer. Uh, you know, right? Like, if you know you have cancer, and then, you know, you know the bad news, I have cancer, then you hear the good news, then you're really excited, because you're like, oh, whoa, that's great, you know? So, th this is part of the thing with the good news. We live in a world where a lot of people are walking around, and they don't think they're sinners, and they don't think that God punishes sinners. So, they don't really know the bad news, so you tell them the good news, and it's not really good to them. You have to explain the bad news to understand why the good news is actually good news. You have to explain who God is, this Father, Son, and Spirit, and this Creator who made us to love Him, and how we rebelled against Him, and how death and disease and everything comes from that, but how He's good, and from the very beginning, He, he promised to restore things, and we're, we're actually living in this, in this story right now. I mean, you know, like great stories, Star Wars and whatever, like imagine being like in Star Wars. We were recently at Disney in the like Star Wars area, you know, and, and uh, Oh my gosh, no offense if any of you are like this, but you know, the, the Star Wars nerds, they show up and they, they got their lightsabers and they're, you know, they're, they're like, it's like, you are 60 years old, bro. And they're living, that, they're living it out. They're, you know, they're saying hi to Chewbacca. They're, yeah, you know, it's like they want to put themselves in that story. And, that, and that's fun to pretend that you're in a story. Kids do this too. Uh, my, my son Jeremiah, he's, he's always a character in something. He's always got an outfit on. He's making up things. He's always in some fictional world. Look, we're in like the greatest story ever. The most epic drama ever. You're, 
you're in this drama. You're in this story. You are in this post-Genesis 3 account. I, I, I hope that like excites you to know that you're a part of this story that we're talking about. The thing here for us to see as we have Genesis in front of us is the gospel wasn't something that God hid until Christmas when the eternal Son became flesh. No, here in the creation story, we see that, that at the fall, God shared the seeds of a plan that He already worked out before time began. And the seeds of that plan were the promise of a seed. I will put enmity, verse 15, between you and the woman. This is the proto-angelion. And between your seed and her seed, he's going to bruise you on the head. He's going to bruise you on the head. And in, in the Hebrew, there's 15 words in verse 15. And the one word that is repeated twice here is seed. In Hebrew, it's zerah. Zerah, zerah, seed, seed. Like the English word seed, zerah can be used to speak of an individual or, or of a collective or even both. And in this case, we have the individuals of our mother and of the serpent, and we also have the collectives of their respective seeds, which the Bible describes as the children of the dark and the children of the light. Uh, John uses that language in the New Testament. In fact, thinking of John in John 8:44, Jesus spoke of the children of the devil, who are juxtaposed with the children of the promise. The promised seed will overcome the darkness. The seed, as you read the story, the one who overcomes, who bruises the head, is a mysterious figure who we learn more and more about as you keep reading the story of the Bible. The promise of the seed passes from the parents, our parents, Adam and Eve, to Noah, which you can read about in Genesis as the story continues. And then it passes from Noah to Abraham, and by the time you get into Genesis 10 and 11, by the way, this is why when you're reading in the Hebrew Bible and you see all these long genealogies and you're like so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so oh skip you know we think those are boring but actually they are incredibly important because what those genealogies are doing is they're chasing the seed promise why trace the seed promise because the promise that a male child would come one day who would deliver a fatal and final blow to darkness that's why the blow to the head you take a blow to the head that you're done so that you he's going to bruise your head you're going to you're going to die you took one to the head this, this won't be without a fight, for the verse also speaks of the deliverer being bruised, albeit not fatally. It's not on the head, it's on the heel. We'll talk about that later, but please turn to Genesis chapter 12. Move from chapter 3 to Genesis 12. We're moving from our parents to Noah and now to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. We're following the seed promise in the story, and that takes us to what is known as the Abrahamic covenant of promise, of the promised seed. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God makes a promise. He's continuing this promise of the seed. Specifically, He promises to Abram that He's going to give him a place, that is a land, He's going to give him progeny, that is descendants, and, and, and through him is going to come prosperity, that is blessing. So the promise involves place, progeny, and prosperity. Five times in Genesis 12, as God is giving the Abrahamic covenant, notice that he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. God is taking the onus of keeping that original promise that he is going to send through seed one who's going to overdo the mess. 
Um, Genesis chapter 12, if you move to Genesis chapter 15, turn a couple pages, and in 15 we see that a ceremony is performed for this promise. There's a ceremony in Genesis 15 performed for the promise. If you move from 15 and you look at chapter 17, you see that there is a sign following the ceremony of the promise, and that is the sign of circumcision. And, and you know, if you know much about Jewish culture and history, that's a very significant sign that is tied to the promise. That continues into Christian tradition and, and, you know, and, and life today. So, so you have the promise in 12, you have the ceremony in 15, you have the, the, the sign in 17. Now, now move to chapter 22, flip a couple more pages, Genesis 22, verse 15. We have an angel who calls to Abram, we read in 2215, and the angel says in verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of the enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Again, I will, I will, I will. The onus is on God. The promise passes from Abe to Isaac to Jacob is confirmed in the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the promise then moves into the story of the people of Israel that we read about in the Hebrew Bible. And the story of the people of Israel, uh, in, in it there's a, an epic saga about them getting a king and there's this King David and, and God anoints him and God comes to David and we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Chronicles 17, Psalm uh, 89. We read this Davidic promise and the seed talk is there again. This story is being told. From our parents to Noah, from Noah to Abe, to Isaac to Jacob, to Israel to David. And, and here in this Davidic covenant, you get this same language of I will, I will, I will. The story is building from Genesis 3 and that promise of the seed. The seed is a messianic figure as we keep reading the story. He's a messianic figure who will come through Israel, who will be a king, a descendant of David and Abraham. And this king won't just be the king of Israel. He will bring peace to the entire world. All those things in the evening news, all the nations that are hurting and the people who are displaced and, and war and more, all of that is going to come to an end when the king comes. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of this. He revealed the promise that is going to come through the seed of a, of a new covenant that comes to the storyline. And in this day, God is going to restore humanity. He's going to restore His people. His people will have their hearts circumcised. They will, given, they will be given new hearts. And they will experience what our parents once experienced, what it is to be naked and unashamed. We'll have final restoration that will come through the promise made to Abe and David and by Jeremiah in the new covenant promise that all is weaving the story of the seed and the story of redemption. The story is all tied to seed. And they all point to Christmas. When we open our New Testament, when we get to the Gospels, we see genealogies in them, don't we? In Matthew and Luke specifically. And what are those genealogies doing? Tracing the story of the seed. Jesus is a descendant of David, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of the one man who we all descend from, Adam. And, and, and he is the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve. 
with the biblical texts in front of us, if your eyesight is good, that is, I notice it's kind of small, but in 1 Chronicles 17, the talk of David's throne being reestablished as, as lasting forever and ever and ever. 1 Chronicles 17, 13, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. In other words, the seed who comes is not going to be a mere mortal. He will be mortal to be sure, but he will be more than mortal for he will live in perpetuity forever. He will be the king of creation, the Messiah. This is what Genesis 3.15 looked forward to. This is what the gospel is tied to. This is what Christmas is, is, is a part of. The Christmas story didn't happen in a vacuum. It's a continuation of this saga. There is an ancient source known as Bereshit Rabbah, or Genesis uh, Rabbah. It dates back uh, to 300 to 500. It's a commentary on the book of Genesis. And I share Bereshit Rabbah with you because a lot of times people think, oh, the, the Messiah born of a woman who like liberates. Isn't that something that Christians made up? No, 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 hundreds, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. Uh, ancient Jewish sources show this. So with regard to, to, to the Bereshit Rabbah, we read in this ancient rabbinic commentary in 23 this, and I quote, Eve had respect to that seed which is coming from another place, and who is this? This is the Messiah, the King. The ancients read this as a proto-angelion. They didn't have as much as a story that, that we have, and so we're thankful to have more of the story. That said, let's move from the old to the new, and we're going to wrap this up by reading from the Gospel of Luke. Find your way into the New Testament to Luke, and we'll have our final point before us now. We've talked about storytelling and, and truth-telling and retelling from creation to Christmas, and now foretelling from Christmas and beyond. We've talked about the power of story... In fact, I, I was uh, musing on the power of story and I, I was uh, reading on, you know, the master class. They have different intellectuals and figures who teach these classes online and there's a master class on writing. And, and it says this, and I quote, Storytelling has one ambition at its core, to capture your reader's attention and keep them engaged with your story until the end. Foreshadowing is a valuable literary technique a writer can use to create and build suspense that will keep your readers turning the page. Foreshadowing or foretelling is what happens in the story of the Hebrew Bible. You get talk about a seed and talk about a deliverer and, and talk about a Messiah and, and, and talk about someone's going to be born of a woman and, you, and, it, and it keeps you engaged on the edge of your seat to find out what's going to happen. And here in Luke 2, we, we see the suspense come to head as Revelation comes to tell us what is going on now. Verse 1, chapter 2. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken in the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own town. Joseph went up from Galilee, the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and the family of David. Oh, David. Oh, seed promise. Aren't we waiting for one to come from David? Isn't there one who's going to come from David? Isn't that what we've been reading and the story we've been telling ourselves for thousands of years? Yes, the one from David has come. And this is why later in the New Testament accounts, when you're reading about Jesus, they love to speak of Jesus. Look here at Romans chapter 1. Jesus is the one who was promised beforehand through the prophets in Holy Scriptures concerning His Son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. 
This is the story. This is the seed. He has come. Look at verse 5 of Luke 2. In order to register with Mary, who was engaged to him, and who was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, lied him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying in the fields and keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you euangelion. Good news. Oh, I read about euangelion in Genesis 3. Yeah, that's right. It's the same story. I bring you euangelion. Good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the seed. Notice... Right, gospel, evangelion language, David, seed promise. It's all, it's all tied together. The foretelling, the foreshadowing of the story keeps sucking you into the story and you're going, when is he going to come? When is he going to come? When is he going to come? When, when is this Savior going to come? The prophet Isaiah develops this in, in Isaiah chapter 53. And he, he talks about, uh, in Isaiah 53, that with seed language... The one who's going to come and is going to be bruised. Remember Genesis 3? We, we talked about the serpent having his head bruised. What's this stuff about the bruising of his heel? Well, the prophets also foreshadowed, foretold, that when the seed came, he would be a savior, but he would also suffer. So I mentioned Isaiah 53. Let me just put it in front of you. Here, if you look at the text, you'll see language of the seed who comes, the servant who comes, is going to suffer. He's going to be bruised. He's like a lamb led to slaughter. He's pierced through, the prophet Isaiah says. Mind you, hundreds of years before Rome was on the scene and crucifixion was a thing. He's going to be pierced. He's going to be bruised. The cross of Calvary is where this is fulfilled. Where the seed, the Savior, comes and he hangs and he dies a bloody death. But it's just to the heel. It wasn't to the head. For he rises up from the grave and conquers death in the kingdom of darkness. We commemorate this in Good Friday and Easter, but Easter and Good Friday would be nothing unless we had Christmas. Because in Christmas, we have the seed come, and the seed is the eternal Son in flesh. In fact, speaking of Isaiah and prophecy, in Isaiah 7:14, this wonderful text, we read. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. In Isaiah uh, 7, 14, this text gets quoted in Matthew 1, 23, and the Bible tells us this is fulfilled. Let me read Matthew 1, 23. The virgin will be with child and will give forth a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Hebrew word in Isaiah 7, 14 is the word Alma. It is a word that can mean young woman. It also can mean virgin. And in that culture, you know, that's what it was. If you were a young woman, you were a virgin. I say that because in our culture, that's not always the case. And so jaded skeptics today will attack Isaiah 7 and go, oh, it doesn't mean that. It just means young woman. And you go, you don't know what you're talking about. But let, let me just slam dunk on you really quick. When the Jewish rabbis translated Isaiah 7:14 into Greek, when they translated that into Greek, they used the Greek word parthenos which is the word exclusively for virgin. In, in fact, uh, in science today, we talk about partneogenesis, which is a scientific term for asexual reproduction. That is virgins giving birth. 
So I'll also meet skeptics who'll say, you believe in a virgin, the virgin having a baby? Yeah, like look it up, parthenogenesis. There is such a thing in biology known as asexual reproduction. There's some uh, uh, fleas and aphids and fish and birds that asexually reproduce. It's a thing that happens. It's, it's not a big deal. You should study your science before you start slinging things around here. Now, uh, to be sure, among humans, we haven't seen this phenomenon, but alas, it happened. It occurred, and we have reason to believe that that is the case, and we stand on the truth of God's Word in this account. Now, I want to land the plane, though, so I'm not going to go further into that. What we have seen this morning is that Christmas didn't happen in a vacuum. What we have seen this morning, and what this sermon series intends to do, is to help us understand the virgin conception and why it is important. I, I want you to understand this doctrine, not as an abstract doctrine, but as, as a part of a story. And I showed you this morning that the virgin conception is crucial because it ties the biblical story together. The prophets said there's going to be this one who comes through the woman. The prophets say, like Isaiah 7, the woman's going to be a virgin. The, she, we'll talk about why that's important in forthcoming sermons. But without the Christmas story, you'd still be on a cliffhanger going, when is this going to come? Church, he has come. And that's why we're here, to celebrate him. And he is coming again. Which is why we uh, always follow our sermons by having communion where we proclaim his death and we proclaim his coming. As, as I close the sermon, we're going to come to the communion table. We're going to sing songs. And, and the communion table, you have bread and a little cup of juice. And the bread is a reminder of the body of the eternal Son. That the eternal God took on flesh and dwelt among us. The, the, the cup is a reminder that He was bruised on the heel. His blood shed out. His blood shed out. And this story is a life-giving story, which is why we herald it, because God has chosen to take this story and save people from it. To literally be, be transformed and saved through the telling of this story. In my introduction, I mentioned an NPR article on science and storytelling. I, I talked to you guys a little bit about how scientists have, have seen uh, how, how the brain activates on listeners when stories are being told. In, in, in this article, there's also something else that is interesting, that stories don't just impact the listener, but they also have a strange relationship with the teller of the story. L listen to this piece of the article. As you hear a story unfold, your brain waves actually start to synchronize with those of the storyteller. Uri Hassan, professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University. When he and his research team recorded the brain activity in two people, as one person told a story and the other listened, they found that the greater the listener's comprehension, the more closely the brainwave patterns mirrored those of the storyteller. Isn't that interesting? And it makes me think about how the story of the Bible connects us to the storyteller of the Bible, the author, God. And as we listen to the revelation of His Word, it's like our souls synchronize with the divine storyteller, the Lord of glory, and we get closer to Him. We're not just learning information when we're reading the Bible and we're, we're retelling the story of the Bible. We're actually being transformed by Him, and we're getting closer to Him. 1 Corinthians 2 speaks of having the mind of Christ. Romans 8 speaks of being conformed to His image. As we hear the story, we're actually being synchronized to Him. And this is why it's so important that you have preachers that actually preach the story, and they, they preach and herald the triune God of the story, 
and the good news of the gospel and invite you into the story because that's where the life is. I say that with a heavy heart because much preaching that I see in North America today is anything and everything but that. It's more about how to make yourself happy and find a better life and five steps to this or that. And it's not actually giving the story. This story is an adventure. It's a drama. It's exciting. And brothers and sisters in Christ, you're in the story. Hear the story. Synchronize with the grand storyteller God and let's sing praises to Him and come to His table and give thanks and praise for all He has done. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the story of Your Word. We thank You for the power of story. And we see Your wisdom in revealing Yourself through story given its power to humans. Given that You have made us in in Your image and, and given that we, humanity, have rebelled against You, You are so gracious to reveal this story to us. For we deserve to be left in the dark, writing our pagan mythologies, trying to figure out what this broken world means. But You are so gracious and so kind not to leave us in the dark, but to shine Your light and to reveal Yourself and to promise to send one who would solve it for us. It's Advent, and we celebrate the seed who has come. Lord Jesus, we give thanks and praise to You, and we come to Your table now to honor You, to reflect on You, to grow in Your grace. So Lord, as we come to the table, work, Lord, through this, this, this great symbol that is before us and through the Gospel that has been preached today to draw us to You. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.